All right. Welcome to another episode of Out of Curiosity. We're looking for biblical clarity for modern questions. And uh, (laughs) thank you. Uh, My name is Cameron, and I'm joined by my good friend Garland. What's up, Garland? Great to join you, Cameron, again. You were in town last week. We got to actually sit face-to-face and, uh, and just catch up on live. So that was, uh, it was good to see you. Yeah, it was good to see you, too. We had grand ambitions of maybe trying to record an in-person podcast, but alas, it, it was through our hands like sifting sands. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so we're back to, back to the internet here. Such a nerd. Here. Such a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway... I think we're going to get even nerdier as we typically do on this podcast. Uh, we've, got a, we've got a really interesting question today. It is, should the Bible shape modern ethics or our ethics here in the modern world, here in a world a couple thousand years divorced from the writing of the Bible? The, how could we possibly, you hear this a lot, how could the Bible possibly be a meaningful source for formulating sort of our ethical vision for life in the world that we live in now with all of its complexities and so on and so forth? Um so, I mean, I think most Christians are intuitively going to say, well, yes, of course, we understand the Bible to be authoritative, uh, at least in some sense, um, hopefully. Uh, but how do you actually put skin on that? How do you do it? That's, that's the question. Um, so, Yeah, I think even by virtue of how we're framing the question, should the Bible shape modern ethics? And, and like you said, um, I think it's, it, it seems as if for most, at least Jesus followers, it, the answer to that begins with a clear yes. But what I've noticed is, um, and we might say for many skeptics, the answer is a clear no. Uh, it's an ancient document, right. like a lot of other ancient documents, uh, culturally so different. Why would we even pay it much mind? Um, and then what I also see is a spectrum in between there. I think as even sincere Jesus followers begin to wrestle with the Bible, wrestle with some of the things that it teaches, uh, maybe some of their, their own sensibilities differ from what they see in the Bible, oftentimes when those discussions begin to take place and Christians are disagreeing on how to, we might say, live out some of these ethical decisions, um, oftentimes this is actually the question behind that. And so in really serious, significant discussions, even among uh, fellow Jesus followers, oftentimes, um, ultimately, we're going to have to go back to answering this question. So when we talk about really significant things and Christians disagree, and some will say, well, of course, uh, maybe it says that, but that was a different context, or that was a different time and place. We don't apply that like this now. And not to mention the debate, uh, the divide between what about Old Testament versus New Testament? Uh, are we are we trying to apply things written to an ancient people group living, uh, kind of wandering in the wilderness and establishing a nation? What, what do we do yeah. with all of this? And ultimately, um, I think this question um, becomes really, really important. And, and just, I think for this podcast, we have, we spend a lot of time talking about how Christians should respond to different things in culture. We've talked about, uh, you know, marijuana. We've talked about prescription drugs. We've talked about art. And we've talked about uh, all sorts of ethical decisions, ethical things that Christians have to think through on this podcast. So we thought it might be important just to take our eyes almost up a level to ask a more foundational question, which is, should we even use this book to begin with? And if so, how do we go about doing that? So yes, putting some skin on that uh, almost as a foundation to a lot of the other conversations we have uh, on this podcast. Before we even get into, you know, kind of given some guardrails, we might say, on how we use the Bible. I thought there's several, and I feel like most of these episodes, uh, I I begin with like, let's do some caveats, all right? Some things we have to kind of clarify first. Um, And and maybe just, let me speak maybe to a skeptic uh, before we even even begin this. Um, 
We ask this as a should question. Should the Bible shape or inform modern ethics? And I think one of the things I hear from our, uh, our skeptical friends is something like this. Um, the question, is it even rational? Is it coherent to claim that the Bible has authority over the modern world? Like in what sense? Does it have authority? That's an irrational kind of claim. Well, and people might say, well, you don't look to the Iliad to, you know, to, right, to form right. your, your yeah. modern ethics. Quite obviously. Exactly. Well, Why is yeah. the Bible any we, different? Beowulf. We don't, we don't apply Beowulf yeah. for ethical decisions now. So why do we do this with the, uh, this particular document? And, and just by way of response to that, just a couple things to think through. Um, Christians affirm, they, they believe it um, as a matter of presupposition that there is a personal being who created the universe. Now, on, on its face, that is not an irrational claim. Um, and so it's, not an, it's, it's coherent and it is rational to affirm uh, such a proposition that there is a personal being who created the universe. Um, it, what follows from that, and, and it, it might even be a little surprising, it doesn't naturally follow from that. It doesn't have to follow from that, that this being has chosen to reveal himself in such a way for uh, his creation and even more specifically human beings to know him, to 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 hear from him, to understand something about him and how he means for us to live. That this being would choose to reveal himself is also not an irrational proposition. Um, and so uh, we're beginning just really high level. It's not irrational for a Christian to affirm that there is a personal being behind the universe and that this personal being has chosen to reveal himself. These are things Christians affirm by way of presupposition. The third um, is really when we get down to it. Christians affirm that part of that revelation of this personal being who created the universe has occurred in human language. And we then have to say where, where in human language. And it's there, it's right there where uh, Jesus' followers say that he's done so in what we call the scriptures, our Old and New Testament, the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament. And so because of those, because of those three propositions, then Christians affirm that when those scriptures, which are the revelation of the God who made the universe, when they speak, they have authority. But again, none of that is inherently uh, irrational. So Jesus' followers are looking to these ancient scriptures as authoritative, and not just authoritative in teaching theological truths, but authoritative in shaping what it looks like to honor the God who made the universe. And so we, we talk about that a lot on this podcast, you know, that Gen, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 mandate and how God has made the universe for humans to flourish and bring goodness. But um, we're, we're kind of going philosophically at even why we make such a claim. Um, and so none of that on its surface is inherently irrational, nor is it incoherent. And so if you're skeptical and you think Christians, man, it seems silly that you look to this, this ancient Bible. And like you said, we don't do the same thing with the Iliad or Beowulf, um, that, that at least is a, uh, the first part of, we might say, a response to that. This is where a Christian is, is arriving to the table to, to talk about the ethical decisions using the Bible. This is how we got here, I guess, in short. And, and maybe I would also add to that, it's, it's not, it is, these are presuppositional things that Christians hold to, but there's also an evidential basis for believing it. And, and what I mean by that is, the center of the Bible is the resurrection of Jesus, and we devoted a whole whole episode to that earlier in the season. But we we believe that in history, like this God, the second person of the Trinity, I know that's all complicated, but God incarnated himself in the person of Jesus, had a public ministry, a public death, a public burial, 
and then a public resurrection. And so from that point, if you come to believe that this man, Jesus, really did raise from the dead and thus, whoa, we better listen to what he has to say. What does he do? He, in his teaching ministry, baptized, authorized, gave authority to the Old Testament. I mean, he viewed that thing as authoritative as it comes. And then he baptized, deputized, authorized his apostles, his disciples, to then go and uh, carry the authority that would lead into the writing of the New Testament. And so... So there's this fulcrum point in the resurrection that then just bleeds its authority out into the Old and the New Testaments, both directions. So I think that's an important piece of the puzzle as well. I think that's totally true. So both from a presuppositional perspective and from an evidential perspective, there is good reason for uh, people to affirm everything that we just said so far about what Christians affirm about the Bible. Now, let me just give something for a skeptic to maybe ponder, just to think through, um, not necessarily even a challenge, but if... There is not a personal being behind the universe as we see it. Or maybe if there is, but he has not spoken, he has not revealed himself to us in some kind of a way, then I would just simply ask the question, what then is the source of uh, authority in making ethical decisions? How would one uh, then navigate making objective moral decisions. Um, I don't want to, you know, we, we're, this is not an apologetics podcast, uh, but I would just simply offer um, that as a as a question to uh, one of my friends or neighbors who may uh, who may come from a different worldview, bringing that worldview to the table. I, in in pondering this, in interacting with. Uh, particularly naturalists uh, and uh, people from an atheistic background, uh, including some of the the real famous, super smart, way smarter than us ones uh, that are well published, I have found the the answer to this question to be lacking. I, I've I've not found it compelling. I've not found it convincing. And so um, I, I would just ask somebody listening to this to to consider carefully, both from a presuppositional perspective and from an evidential perspective, what what is my source then, if there is not a God or if there is some kind of a being out there, but he hasn't, he or she or it hasn't revealed itself, how do I make objective moral decisions? What is my source uh, for doing yeah. so? And so just something to consider. Anything you want to add on that? Well, just that the whole history of Western philosophy has been struggling with this question, you know, for right. hundreds of years. Yeah. And and where it essentially is now is pretty authoritatively like, no, there is no objective source for morality. Mm-hmm. And people are, unco- people are uncomfortable with that. People can almost never live in that with that belief. Right. But, but it is, it's a scary proposition to think about. And I, I don't know that mm-hmm. the average person on the street has kind of recognized like, oh, yeah, that's, that is kind of what you're, what you're left with. Right. Um, yeah, often I find that, that worldview to be largely incoherent in how people approach actually making ethical decisions. Um, so yeah. a couple other caveats before we dive in. I mean, like I said, I feel like I'm giving Let's a whole spend 15 of minutes. Yeah. Let's spend 15 just minutes on all these. Not talking about it, but just giving caveats. Okay. <laughs> but uh, here's like, these are important, I think. Um, the next one is this. Um, Christians, Jesus followers, are not always and should not always expect that the ethics described in the scripture should be applied unilaterally to people who don't share that background. That's one of the beautiful things about uh, a democratic society that we live in in America, at least, is um, people have the freedom to adopt any worldview that they want to. And Christians, um, while they may they may vote in particular ways from their ethical background um, or from the authoritative text that they read. Uh, they sh- we're not expecting that the rest of culture should adopt the ethical demands that are espoused in the Bible. Um, the, sec- the next caveat would be 
not all Christians agree. And so within the Christian camp, there's disagreement on how to understand these things. And maybe most problematically, uh, Jesus followers don't always live out the moral vision of what the scriptures say. And I know you and I could sit here and spend hours confessing the various ways that you and I have not done that. And so today, uh, with, yeah, like today, yeah, literally. Uh, and I, I do want to say the stakes are pretty high in this. Um, when we're, yeah. we're talking about trying to take an ancient document written in a different culture and figure out how to apply its ethical teaching as an authoritative text in the modern world, this the stakes are really high, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to require some, at times, some imagination um, on our part. It's going to require some hard work. But just consider just a handful of examples of, of just showing why the stakes are high. Issues of sexuality and gender and marriage and how one should spend uh, one's money, how you should vote. If you're in a, 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 a soured marriage, can you divorce or not? The question of life and abortion, uh, alcohol, marijuana, end of life decisions, end-of-life care, all of these are actually ethical decisions. Our culture is divided on largely ethical decisions, and the stakes are really high in these. And obviously, uh, people's uh, people's uh, like lives are literally at stake in some cases. And so people's joy, yeah. people's happiness, people's care uh, are at stake. People's dignity. Yeah, their dignity. And so we, we, we approach this topic with, I hope a great sense of humility, um, respect for those that I think disagree. And I think too often Christians have maybe not approached it that way. And uh, we reap the benefits, or I, or I should say we reap the consequences of when we when we do so inappropriately. So uh, just anything else you want to say before we actually dive in, all right? This is all caveat. We had to get all that out of the way nope. before we look at it. But when nope. we frame it as a should question, I think we have to kind of start here. Yeah. No, I think that's a great intro. It's It's loaded. This is this is behind how to live, how to contribute towards human flourishing, how to honor God. This is foundational to all of it. So it's really worth, um, really worth pursuing. So let's get into it. Yeah. Okay. Um, now before we do, uh, I, just a massive, massive shout out. Uh, and uh, I want to I, I want to give credit where it is due. I mean, I think a lot of these conversations happen in in many Christian, you know, blogs and articles and books. And we see uh, Christians writing about ethical demands all the time. Uh, but in a sustained and uh, clear methodology, a recent scholar, um, Richard Hayes, I think did a masterful job uh, in kind of laying out how a how a Christian should form uh, just just ethical decisions. And his book is called The Moral Vision of the New Testament. Uh, it's been out for a couple decades. It's not a new book. Um, but this this book is just a, it's such a magnificent, I think, treatment on this question. And a lot of what we're going to say is simply going to be channeling uh, Richard Hayes's suggestions. And so um, what he's going to do is um, try to help a, a Jesus follower figure out, we might say, what it looks like to... Uh, I'll use a I'll use a sports example, not to be overly uh, trite or simplified. But what is this? If we if we take an ethical decision, um, uh, Christian sexuality, Christians' use of money, Christians' use of alcohol, whatever it may be, we need to then 
understand what is the methodology for maybe establishing our strike zone for how we go about making that decision or, th- or uh, from, from a baseball analogy, how wide is the strike zone? How narrow is the strike zone that we're trying to, in a sense, um, fit our ethical decision through? And we're going to see that there's, there's some examples that we may come to the Bible with, some questions we may come to the Bible with, where there's a pretty wide strike zone. How should I vote? That, that's the kind of question that we're going to put lots of verses together. It's going to be not just a square of our strike zone. It's going to be like a multifaceted, strange-looking shape as we bring all these passages together. And there are some Christians that say, I don't want to deal with that. I want to make it really simple. I'll be a one-issue voter. And they come to the table with that one issue in its strike zone. And that's, a, that's choices that Christians have uh, to make. Um, so we're trying to figure out what does it look like to formulate that strike zone as we then come to make ethical choices uh, with, with our life and with our decisions. Now, I guess, now just let me say this, you could be a Christian who says, well, I, I want to follow Jesus, but I don't care what the Bible says. Uh, or you could be a, a Christian and say, I hear what it says, but I want to ignore it. Um, like, I, I see that it says that, but I just don't want to do that. Um, you can also... Uh, claim and, and affirm what you think the Bible says and be totally wrong on what the Bible says. And again, I just want to acknowledge yeah. uh, that the stakes are really high in this. And so uh, now we're going to dive into Richard Hayes. I mean, it, again, anything by way of clarification, I think that I'm leaving out before we dive in. I don't think so. I don't think okay. so. Let's, you let's, like the let's strike zone? It. Does strike zone help? I, I like the strike zone. The strike zone work for you? Okay. Uh, I wasn't a great yeah. baseball player, so yeah, you no, never I was know. Terrible. You could use you could use like bumpers on a bowling alley, uh, something like that. Yeah. But I'm actually worse at bowling than I am at baseball. Um, so here's yeah. the four tasks I think that we have before <laughs> us. Here they are, and uh, and I will, we'll go through them uh, really quickly. I think it's intuitive for uh, a lot of Christians I talk to, but just by way of reminder, here's Hayes Hayes's suggestions about what it looks looks like to approach uh, forming an ethical stance from the scripture. There's four things we have to do. First is we have to read the Bible, <laughs> like read the texts themselves. So when we approach something like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and then we see what Jesus says about, say, uh, lust and what lust is, we have to read Jesus in context, in the context of Matthew and allow that text to speak. Or when we look at what Jesus has to say in uh, the Gospel of Luke, for example, and he, he's, he's asked a question about divorce, but then he, he says uh, d- a divorce is not allowable in the Gospel of Matthew, but he says, except for porneia. So it's the Greek word porneia. What does that mean? We have to got, get into the text itself and notice what it is saying. What are the emphases of this particular text. So the Gospel of Luke, for example, um, places a high emphasis on caring for the poor. Uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians places a heavy emphasis on unity. We have to consider, are we reading an Old Testament document or New Testament document? Are we reading something descriptive or prescriptive? These are some of the kinds of questions that we have talked about before in this podcast, but we want to just call people's attention to it. That takes effort. It takes work to dive into an individual text of Scripture and try to understand best what it means. The irony is so many people will just, you know, flip to a page in the Bible, have no idea what the context is, what the genre is, the intention, the period and redemptive history it's taking place in, and think, well, I'm just going to do what it says. 
and end up deeply dishonoring and misrepresenting and like dishonoring God through their so-called like faithful attempts to just, you know, take the Bible as it it is. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Totally. And I think that's, so as a good example, when we talk about issues like uh, women's role in the church, okay, so we'll just get, we'll go all, we'll go straight to it. Um, What we're really going to be doing is largely uh, we're going to be looking first at individual texts. What does Paul mean, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11? And it's not an easy process. Um, And I think too often we can jump to a passage, uh, read it completely out of context, as you say, and then rush to make an ethical decision. And uh, as you suggested, many times Christians do that. I was actually just sitting uh, at a coffee shop before this, and somebody I was listening to next to me who uh, didn't seem to be coming from a Christian background, um, sort of uh, talking with their friends, sort of laughing at the silliness of Christians and talking about something Christians affirm. Um, and what they were saying, I was like, that's, that is so out of context. The verse you just quoted that, Oh my gosh, you don't even know what that, what that means. Um, and so both we, we can all do this, flip to a verse, read it out of context. Um, and, and we just need to be wiser than that. So the first task is we might call the exegetical task, which is read the text. The second is read that text among the rest of the scripture. So for like Paul, for example, we have what Paul says in say, 1 Corinthians, but then we have the rest of Paul and we have to synthesize, say, Paul's vision with uh, the, the across the pages of the various letters we might say. And so when we look at what does Mark have to say, I'll give a, a brass tacks example. Jesus's answer to the question of divorce in Mark's gospel gives no exception. However, Matthew's gospel includes, if, except for porneia. And now we have to do the synthetic work. Okay, what do we do with this? Um, how does Matthew inform Mark? We're looking at the genre of gospels. How do these synthesize together? And so this is uh, really difficult, and it's made even more demanding when the New Testament oftentimes will use the Old Testament. So now we have to think through what does it mean for the New Testament to interact with the Old Testament, and it's very, very weighty. So I think often when Christians come to ethical decisions, we begin with sometimes bad uh, exegetical insight. We do task one poor. Then we pick and choose verses out of context from the rest of the Bible. So we do bad exegetical work, then sometimes bad synthesis work, and then we, we roll out an ethical decision without really doing the hard work. And so we wanna say we're starting here. Um, and if you're a skeptic, Listen to the first half of this. This is we start here because we affirm that God has revealed Himself through this. If you're a Jesus follower, this is more difficult than you may think, and we have to do this hard work. Good so far? Yeah, but I do have a question, or maybe Go for it. play devil's advocate for a second. Yeah, push back. Um, so isn't it isn't it the case though that haven't you seen Christians, or maybe I'm speaking to myself, maybe I've been tempted to do this before, who take a biblical text that seems clear on the face, but then you can kind of appeal to, oh, but the story of Scripture and the theme and the this and the that, you can sort of pluck it out, set it in a different context to try to manipulate it to say what you want it to say. I mean, isn't there a danger there on the other side as well? How do we avoid that? Yeah, I think think that that is always a danger, and um, that's where I think— None of us read the Bible in a vacuum, and I think acknowledging that. So when I see a novel interpretation of Scripture that I've never come across before, um, I, okay, I, I want to take that seriously. I don't begin with a dismissive attitude, but 
That's where reading the text again, the task one, and then reading the whole again, task two becomes really, really instructive. Um, and so sometimes I may think I've got a clear text upon further reflection or uh, a new insight from something we've learned about ancient history or ancient grammar or something uh, that we've understood about the way that Jews understood uh, their worldview. Uh, it brings a new, a new clarification. And upon thinking about it, reflecting on it, maybe it now makes the best sense of both the individual texts and the synthesis of those texts. And so I, I think that that should be an ongoing give and take. I think the opposite, the opposite slippery slope would be um, a, a Christian who um, you know, makes a decision, let's say at 18 or 21 about some, some issue and then never revisits it, uh, never is yeah. open to seeing uh, updated scholarship on that. And this is where uh, you and I are Bible nerds who spend a lot of time doing this kind of thing. This is where... Um, not everybody has that kind of time, and we are somewhat dependent on uh, people that that are experts in the field. And so, uh, that's one of the goals of the Out of Curiosity podcast is to try to distill some of these maybe more weighty issues or grammatical issues or historical things into something that's digestible in maybe thirty minutes or so. Um, but yeah, I think I, I think sometimes uh, somebody suggests something and I read it and go, I don't think that makes the best sense of the individual text nor the synthesis. And so maybe it was a novel suggestion and not picked up by other scholars for a reason. Uh, but uh, yeah. I, I don't begin with a skepticism as if I, I have nothing to learn um, from updated scholarship. Yeah. And so maybe, you know, maybe I'm too open. Uh, maybe I'm too excitable. And I would totally uh, acknowledge that. How, I mean, how do you handle that? Yeah, no, I think you have a great answer to it. It's, it's the humility to recognize, yes, the, the whole biblical context does inform every text and every text informs the biblical, con the, you know, is a piece of that larger biblical context. And so you're constantly doing this circle, letting the whole inform the part, letting the part inform the whole. And I think just being humbled, exactly like you've said, that we, mm -hmm. we don't have it figured out at 18. I don't have it figured out at 36. I will not have it figured out at 56 in, in, right. in full and just continuing to be curious and a learner and, um, yeah. I think you had a yeah. great answer. There's two more. And this next one may be the, the, the most fun and the most difficult, the most fraught with danger. Uh, and that's, we have to, it's the hermeneutic task. Uh, we, I just say it this way. We have to cross the bridge. So first, we have to get into the text. Second, we have to synthesize that text within the rest of, say, the New Testament or the writings of Paul or the Gospels. Third, we've got to cross the bridge to our context. That's what hermeneutics is, understanding a communication or an utterance and bringing it into my language I can understand. Understanding, that's what it is. And so um, I'll just quote from Hayes here. Here's what he says. And I think this is, is correct. He suggests that uh, when we do this, it requires imagination. Here's the quote. He says, whenever we appeal to the authority of the New Testament, we are necessarily engaged in metaphor making, placing our community's life imaginatively within the world articulated by the text. In short, none of us live in ancient Rome. That's not our context. Uh, I, we don't live in ancient Ephesus. And so um, we then have to use some imagination to bring that into, you know, where I live, Fayetteville, Arkansas, where you live, Portland, Oregon, and where maybe a Jesus follower living right now in China or India lives. And so uh, Hayes suggests sometimes when we read the New Testament, we're going to see it affirming a rule a clear rule, a timeless rule. But other times, and, and those are, those are uh, 
when we come across those, they're really helpful. And I think we can look at some of those things in the New Testament. So James has a heavy emphasis on not showing partiality. And we're going to see that carried across our entire synthesis of the New Testament. And I think it can create for us a simple rule that partiality based on somebody's wealth or standing is not to find a home in the church. And when it does, it's wrong. Okay, I think we could see a rule there. But other times we might see a principle on display. Uh, a principle would be something like showing, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to 10, Paul um, is interacting with an issue on the table in an, an ancient issue that we don't deal with today about food sacrifice to idols. And he will lay out several principles within 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. They're not things we could take I would say directly to our culture now because I've never been tempted to eat food sacrificed to an uh, idol in a temple. But nevertheless, some of his principles he lays down are things that I can now carry into similar situations in our context. We talked about some of those actually with the, uh, the marijuana episode. The third, though, is a little bit more general. So a rule is very specific. A principle is a little less specific. A paradigm is even less specific. Um, a paradigm would be uh, uh, the New Testament's, we might say, teaching that Christians should uh, live lives that are servant-hearted and sacrificial. It's just a paradigm that we approach uh, all of our decisions with, um, a cross-shaped, we might say. And lastly, the most general would be we, we adopt a Jesus-shaped worldview, a cross-shaped worldview where Jesus is our king, um, where death and, and sin have been defeated, where love has triumphed over sin and darkness. It's a worldview that we espouse. And so um, as we're looking at different questions, um, we have to ask, are we looking at a rule? Is this a principle? Is this coming from a paradigm? Or is this just part of our worldview? And sometimes that can help us to have charity when we're talking with Christians who may disagree with with us on a particular ethical decision. Uh, interact with that one. I know you and I uh, are doing this crossing of the bridge pretty regularly on this podcast. So uh, what, what do you have to say uh, about that, Cameron? Just kind of interact with me for a minute on that one. Yeah. I mean, I, this is implied in, you know, this, that this, the fact that this takes work, you've already said it, but yeah, I think it's, it's a great schematic there. Rule, principle, paradigm, worldview, going from the specific to the more general. And it, yeah, it just takes a lot of work to figure out when, when something is which and uh, Christians are going to disagree over that. And it, it's um, yeah, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of study. Yeah, that's helpful. So the fourth is this, um, and, and this is where Hayes just says, you got to get practical. Okay. What does that mean? Pragmatically. Uh, so we get in the text, we read it in context with other texts of the new Testament. Uh, then we have to cross the bridge. And lastly, we have to finally get practical, pragmatic. Um, yeah. And so th this is the, the way that Jesus' followers would then go about forming ethical decisions. And again, uh, the stakes are really high when we talk about sexuality and gender and divorce and abortion and end-of-life care and uh, joy in life and human flourishing. Um, we think that the New Testament has things to say about each of these issues. Um, and I think oftentimes we might short-circuit some of this process. And I thought Hayes... Uh, really was helpful. Maybe the best part of his book, and here's how we'll, uh, I think, maybe maybe synthesize all this together. Uh, in reading across the pages of the New Testament, Hayes suggests actually that we have three unifying, he might, we might call them framing visions of hmm. what New Testament ethics comes down to, uh, and they're helpful. They all start with C. The first is community. 
that uh, everything that the New Testament is driving to is Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, forming this new humanity united under Jesus. Uh, and you can see that across every single page of the New Testament. It's in every, it's in every book, every letter, everything. The second is we have a cross-shaped vision. Our vision is framed by the cross. The humiliation has now been actually enacted as triumph, that forgiveness is made available, that sin and death have been defeated, that Jesus really did say, you know how power works among the rest of the human population, and it always leads to, to, to crushing other humans. In fact, I, I say, no, 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 become a servant of all. I'm laying my life down. Uh, it's a cross-shaped vision. And the third is, uh, the third framing vision is that we are living in new creation. So community cross, new creation. Uh, that resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus has really inaugurated um, a new kind of being. Paul would say the old is gone, the new has come. And he's talking about his ministry there, what the church does. Um, And so those are the unifying framing visions of the New Testament. Now, what might surprise people is, and it was a surprise to me, um, while it's very significant, Hay says that love is actually not it, we, we don't see it across the pages of our New Testament, uh, this concept of love. And, uh, and I think especially in a modern world, what we've appropriated love to mean is complete acceptance of what somebody else wants to do or not do, um, hmm. which I wouldn't call that love necessarily anyway. Uh, but love is not one of those kind of core framing visions of what it means to approach ethical decisions. Community which we might say, yes, of course, love is a part of that cross. Yes, of course, for God so loved the world and new creation. Yes, we walk in the way of Jesus and love, but uh, that those really form, community cross, new creation form, uh, this ethical imagination of a Jesus follower. And to me, as I was simmering on that, just thinking about that, it just, those were really cool just to be thinking about, uh, just to kind yeah. of put fresh eyes to and attention to in my own, in my own life, in my own, in my own heart. So let's put it all, let's put it all together, okay? What does this mean in applying all of this? Put it down real simply. If you are a Jesus follower, how should you live? I think Hayes is giving us uh, a grid to think through. Um, Now, if you're not, uh, if you're not a Jesus follower, I ask again, on what basis do you make ethical decisions? What is your vision um, of, of what how ethics shape our world. And my second question for you would be how much of your ethical vision actually has its roots in the the Christian worldview? How much has been borrowed mm. from the Christian yeah. worldview? Um, so it's a lot for us to think about. I think this requires on the part of Christians humility. I think we should be very, very humble in approaching these conversations. I think it requires us to be careful, studious, thoughtful. Um, but I think we can then go and confidently apply the, 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 that unifying vision, community, a community where racism is, is broken down, where we can truly look at each other as one and sit down to a meal together, a servant, sacrificial king who dies on a cross, and resurrection where death has been defeated and we can live in a hope that God is bringing his goodness to bear in the world. I mean, good gosh, if that doesn't spur us to a confidence to want to live this out in our real lives, our practical lives, living with Jesus as king, then my gosh, I don't know it will. And if you're a Jesus follower, listen to this. Go read your New Testament again and see those three visions on display. And I think you'll maybe do the, the, the trick for you. Yeah, and remember that the New Testament has this 
leaves us with this note of there is the there is work for us to do to continue this forward. You know, we have the end of Acts and what the early, you know, kind of the end of that early period of the church. And then we have the picture of the revelation and the return of Christ and the new heavens and new earth. And we are in that middle where we actually get to bring that, those beautiful themes, community, cross, new creation. We, we actually get to participate in them and live them out and be Jesus's body, his hands and feet with the Holy Spirit within us here and now. Um, I'm fired up just just thinking about yeah. that right now. So thank you. And uh, I want to do it faithfully. And I know that I fail at that. I know that I have wrong ideas probably all over the place. But yeah, the goal to to continue to keep coming back to Jesus by the power of his spirit, come back to his scriptures, and to at least try, to at least to try to be as faithful and, and as integrous as we possibly can is it's exciting. Yeah, it's a compelling picture, uh, the moral vision of the New Testament. And uh we want to live it out. And so, um, as always, uh, let us know if you have any questions, any follow-ups, uh, and thanks for joining us on Out of Curiosity.